You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Christopher, it's great to have you on, man. Thanks for joining. Well, it's great to be here with you, Ledge. Would you give uh, just a background story of, of your yourself and your work? You have a long storied career, and I, I would love to share this with the audience. Sure. Um, long, long, long time ago, not in a galaxy far away, I was a stockbroker who was pretty unhappy with his career choice. Um, and uh, after... Be living in the over-the-counter um, world of selling penny stocks and all of that awful stuff, I decided to make a career change. And when I left, I, I um, was talking to a friend of mine who said, you know, you, you do a little bit of writing here and there. Have you ever thought about being a technical writer? And, and my friend also knew that I, I loved, you know, tinkering around with technology as well, and old Apple II at the time, and, you know, I loved playing around with technology. So I started looking at it, and I found, um, I found out a little bit more about it, and um, one thing led to another, and I just started um, doing some contract work and some freelance work, and then pretty soon worked into a job here and a job there, and then I wound up working for a lot of different companies over the years, Microsoft being one of them, EMC, Amazon, um, and and then currently here at uh, Temper Networks. So, um, I mean, you've seen uh, big names, yeah, <laughs> big names everywhere. Apple, IBM in there as well. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's a nice little pedigree to have. <laughs> but, yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah, it's definitely nice. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, a knowledge management, you know, sort of documentation aficionado myself, right? And I mean, you you have this sort of unheralded role where you touch everything. You know products better than anybody, and yet you're in this like uh, I don't know. It's like this middle seat where you get to view all the rest of the organization and how it all works together. You have an unlimited number of customers internal and external, it's just a lot to, to balance, you know, I don't know, like just conceptualize that, that role, because you're talking to a lot of engineers, you're talking to a lot of product people, a lot of executives, right? That's what, that's what we do here. And I think the perspectives are so important from your seat. They are. If you can keep them all straight, I think that's part of the problem is you've got so many different perspectives and sometimes even within the same group. So you wind up with 
you know, talking to developers who have a one focus that they're looking at and they want you to approach it from that way. And marketing wants you to approach it from a different way. And, and sometimes they all mesh together and that's great, but most of the time they don't. So you wind up kind of being a mediator in the middle, trying to make everyone happy as much as you can, but also making sure that you're the customer advocate here. And that really at the end of the day, your job is to make sure the customer is successful. So I think of uh, an analogy would might be, you know, it's like I'm picturing the the carousel at the at the mall, you know, and you're kind of you're in the middle of that cylinder going around and and all the horses are there and you know, kids are choosing their horse, but you know, like ultimately like you're you're the guy in the middle going but but but, but y'all it's it's all the same thing. You know, we're, we're talking about the same stuff, you know, and but this is really important. And, you know, from every perspective, you, you have to be a master priority setter in that seat. That's very true. I, I think part of it is people, they all have good ideas and good hearts about what they want. And they all really want the customer to be successful in the end. They're just approaching it from their own I don't want to use the word bubble, I guess, from silo, from their perspective. own silo, yeah. perspective there. Right. And so when I talk to, I can talk to a developer who says, well, you got to, you know, you got to tell them how this works. And sometimes my response is, do you need to know how the engine works to start a car? No. Okay. You might need to know how that engine works if you need to repair it, but you don't need to know how it works to use it. So getting people to kind of understand how much information to give to someone at a particular point in time. Too much information, they don't want to read it. Um, or they get confused because you're giving them information that's not necessary for where they're at at that particular point. Right. right? You know, if somebody's just trying to use a feature, you don't need to start throwing troubleshooting information at them. That's too much information. They'll get lost in the weeds. and they it, It's like feeding somebody a huge plate of food, and then they're just tired and they want to take a nap. They don't have time at that point to really digest it. They, they just right. have to keep going on. Right, right. Yeah, you you have to give people just enough to do what they were trying to do. And, and in some ways, like, you're, you know, we talk about customer empathy. Everybody talks about that now. It's just like that comes up in every conversation I have almost. And it makes me think, like, you have to be, of the highest level of customer empathy of all the customers, internal, external, and and yet you need to kind of be assertive. Like, no, no, I know what you need at this yes. point. You know, not not I don't I don't want to hear what you think you need, but I'm gonna give you what is necessary to do the job that I know that you're in at that particular time. And you'll always find out that you might be wrong. <laughs> and and you adjust for that. I mean, we as a as a technical writer, you're just trying to find the, the clearest path for your customer. Sometimes you'll hear feedback. I've had essays say to me, "I think you're assuming the customer knows more than they do," mm-hmm. and that's a valid piece of information. Sometimes I am, and and it's good to get that and then go back and and look at what you've done and say, okay, I see that. I can see that now. I just finished writing um, the uh, deployment uh, guides for Azure, Google, and um, AWS. And that was quite an experience to really think about those from a customer's perspective and say, wow, this this is hard the first time you do it. 
all of these are very, very different. You know, if you look at Google, it's very simple to go through their UI, but it's just poorly organized. Then you look at Azure and it's really, really solid and polished, but it's like walking through a maze to find what you need. So everything has a little bit of a trade-off in trying what, to figure yeah, it out. I mean, and you have to consume everyone's product. It's not even just yeah. your own. Um, and, you know, I have to imagine that all of those companies are changing the way that you access X, Y, or Z. And so you need to be aware of when everything else changes. They, they move one menu and your doc yeah. is, is out of date and, and you don't even know that, right? So, I mean, how do you even take all the feedback necessary to, to move that forward? Well, I think you can reduce um, the need to do that sometimes by rule number one, don't document somebody else's product. Mm-hmm. Point to their documentation because if you don't want to get in a position where you have to chase somebody else's product development, then you'll spend all your time updating your documentation. You'll never mm-hmm. actually be able to do more with your docs. You're just spending all your time going, well, let's see, did Azure change their UI today? Oh, they did. Great. Now I have to go back and change all my docs. Where it's much easier to say, if you don't know how to create an instance, go to this part of the Microsoft's documentation and read. Is there like a technical writer, you know, sort of a code of ethics? Like, if you're going to change your docs, know that everybody else linked to it? you know, kind of thing. You should. Yeah. <laughs> um, it doesn't always happen. Do y'all like um, get together for happy hour and be like, don't no. change your URL. No, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen. Okay. I wish it did. It would be so much easier, uh, but you do, you know, I, I would say that over my career, one of the regular um, occurrences is somebody coming and saying, I'm getting a 404 mm-hmm. because some link has broken either you know, your company changed their website and they reorganized it and didn't alert everyone. So some of your some of your um, links now are broken and you just have to go through and fix them. Some companies have tried to fix that. Microsoft does a pretty good job by creating these relative links that never really break. Mm-hmm. And they do a pretty good job of that, um, or at least did when I was there. I left in 2007 mm-hmm. so or 8. can't even remember now. It's been a while. It runs together. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of all run together. But, um, you know, so you some people try, they understand that dilemma. Uh, but the best thing is really to try to keep it as self-contained as possible and just send people to other places. Um, you know, Microsoft does a better job of documenting their product. I didn't work on it. I didn't develop it. It would be pretty remiss of me to try to, try to document it the way that 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 company would I would say it's a natural mistake. I think everybody in your seat sets out first to go, okay, you go here and you click this and you do that. And then you quickly realize that, that that's a fool's errand because right. I mean, everyone is updating their product all the time. Right. Exactly. Which, which didn't used to be the case. I mean, you could have plausibly years ago, you know, documented somebody else's thing and had it a shelf life of, you know, a year, right. Before you kind of broke it because it was, you know, whatever it was, you know, windows NT, right. You know, but but now you're talking about like quarterly updates of, of major, major systems. And often even more than that, you know, when you're talking about cloud systems. So, yeah. And you, you never really know. They don't announce a lot of it either. So, mm-hmm. you, so you never really know until you go back in and, and say, wow, these menus have changed or the path to get here or the terminology has changed. I didn't know that. 
um, not everyone puts out a what's new section to the content so you can go right right release notes for content yeah right right so you you just kind of get stuck in that uh, a model of try not to chase it as much as possible there there are very few real technical writer rules that's one of them don't document other people's products one of them is don't promise anything Um, i know there's always that that need to say and that feature will be in our next product that's a no-no and and the reason you never say that is you never know what's going to happen in the future making a promise to a customer marketing and product will be kicking your door down there right (laughs) yes don't promise marketing sometimes will do that they're forward thinking that is the purpose of marketing but in technical content you don't do that and and those of us in the sales we we just make stuff up and sell it so you know (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's completely different perspectives and they're different points in in time, right? Somebody doesn't need to be convinced once they've got the product. So technical documentation doesn't need to convince people Mm -hmm. to use the product. It needs to tell them how to use it. Right. Um, Where marketing does need to convince and sales does need to convince. I mean, there's so much development now that, I mean, documentation isn't, isn't written all the time you've got multimedia kinds of approaches and it, and it comes so close to your support that uh the, the customer touch points become more and more embedded in social media video documentation i mean it's just like your your role feels like the kind of role that would just want to be expanded all the time and uh, you, you get to inherit all the things that that kind of you know maybe everybody else doesn't want to deal with because oh oh good throw it to the <laughs> the technical writers. It reminds me of, like I was a distance runner, you know, and and we would say you know the way we would push back on everybody else would be like you know hello well our sport is your sport's punishment, you know. <laughs> I think it, it's it's similar to that. You know, you have to have a I don't know you have to have a great attitude about being a servant at, at all times, you know, how do, I mean, right. in what, 30 years you talk about doing this. So I mean, why, how, why, and how have you got your brain there and, you know, just evolved with it? I think not making assumptions about what people want. I think if you talk to different people in your organization, they'll tell you our customers want more videos, which is true until they don't want videos. Yeah. And then you start hearing, why can't I have, web content and you produce that and then you'll hear, but I want PDFs, downloadable PDFs as well. So sometimes you only can focus on one of those things and you just have to do it and, and try to get to the others as you can, but never making the assumption that it's one thing mm-hmm. because it's not. Some Most people want a combination of those things. If it's highly technical, a video isn't going to do it. Because you, you you don't want to sit down and say, okay, at three minutes and six seconds, that was that piece of information I needed. So if I need to go back there, I can bookmark that. That's easier when it's really technical to put that kind of information in a guide mm-hmm. that somebody can refer to. Technical documentation is reference documentation. It's not learning specifically. It's really more about, I can't remember how to do X. I'll go look and find out what yeah, to do. You must have a lot of SEO concerns. I mean, you kind of make that searchable for whatever query someone might ask Google. Let's face it, like Google is the way that you find documentation now. (laughs) So you're beholden to so much of that and that the number one hits for products tend to be documentation, which means 
marketing's kind of all up your tail on, you know, hey, you got to optimize that, you know, and keyword <laughs> stuff that document, will you? <laughs> you know? Well, depending on the industry and the industry I've been in for the past 10 years, which has been smaller startups that, that have very specific products, um, we don't, our documentation is not public. Okay. You have to own the product to access it. So, so it's completely self-contained. In fact, when I build my documentation, I actually build a static search mechanism that grabs all the keywords that I can manipulate so I can weight that any way that I want to get customers exactly what they need. Okay. Sometimes that works well. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. So it just depends on how you're approaching it. Yeah, yeah. And do you have... Do you have your own support mechanisms or people comment on the documentation? Uh, where does that go? I mean, how do you, how do you know what, what's your continuous improvement loop? Well, being a small company, right. um, usually that support going, I have a customer and they can't find something or they hate something right. Right? <laughs> or, or they love something, which is much more free, much less right, frequent. Right. Yeah. Um, because people generally don't comment on things that are fine and, and, and help them. They focus and on You must laugh at, you know, every documentation system ends with that little widget at the bottom that says, was this helpful? You know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yes. You know, how many thumbs up do you get? <laughs> it, usually it, it doesn't happen. People generally don't rate on thumbs up on in any company I've worked yeah. for, but they will hit that thumbs down when they don't like sure. something. The problem is there's really no good way to tell unless you're really tracking your customer, what the problem is. So for example, I could have clicked on a topic and went somewhere else from another link and done that three or four times and found what I needed, but I still gave you a thumbs down because it took me too long to get there. So if you're acting on that thumbs down at the end of that process, you're actually fixing a topic that's not broken, right. for example. Right. That was the one that solved their problem, but they're mad now because they had to click through. And they, to get they there. didn't have or didn't take the initiative to write an open-ended comment that would actually have been right. helpful. You know, so yeah. we, we expect you to be perfect, but we're not going to tell you how. <laughs> right. That's right. So you do the best that you can, and hopefully you internally you take all the information you get Customers will give you feedback sometimes. You know, we have a pretty good, because we're small, we have a pretty uh, pretty good relationship with our customers because we can afford to do that when you're smaller. As you get bigger, when you're a Microsoft, you don't have that right. luxury anymore, which is unfortunate, but it's just the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you're talking to a lot of engineers, right, uh, right now. And, and to a T, most of them will tell you, oh, well, I comment my code. You know, my code is self-documenting. It's so good. Um, you know, first of all, help the engineers, you know, best practices from their standpoint, code product, you know, what have you for arming documentation. And second of all, a lot of them are, are even smaller than, than what you're calling small and maybe have to put on the documentation hat sometimes and just don't want to. Right. So, right. you know, let's talk technical documentation for engineers, like just at least basic best practices and, if and when you have the benefit of finally having a big enough org that you can hire real technical writers, you know, what should you have had in place best practice wise in order to not leave those people with a, you know, a disaster that, that can't be rectified? Okay. Good question. That's a long it question. Is. I like to talk, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but easily answered. I think um, number one, always think about your customer when you're writing. 
customers, um, you know, being able to understand what you're saying the first time is the most important thing. Having to reread something is, is deadly to, to any customer. Um, also, don't assume your customer has the level of knowledge you think they have. Always assume there are going to be people who are more technical who will probably gloss over much of what you've written. And you've got the other people who need more. Finding that balance takes a lot of time and effort. You aren't going to get it right all the time, and you're just going to have to deal with that fact. Um, even after 30 years, I still don't get it right. It's just every audience is different, and you you have to kind of play around with that until you find the sweet spot where you're making the, the most people happy. Right. If you try to write to different audiences, you'll find very quickly you run out of time to actually do that, and you don't really help anyone. You just you're, you're you're pigeonholing yourself, and you're running out of time and resources to do that. So that that's another one of those things. Um, I would say make sure as that you have a good plan in place. The, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't build a content strategy and an architecture to start with. And architecture is hugely important. What tool are you going to use? You don't want to get in a position where you have 15 little tools that you're using. You've kludged this together over time. Then you get really busy and you can't maintain it any longer. How are you going to know this? You know, I use a, I use an auth, a structured authoring model called DITA, Darwin Information Typing Architecture, and I use their build process, which builds my content into various formats. It's based on XML and, and XFLT. So I have a plan in place where I can write once and build all sorts of different documents out of that and, and conditionalize them for different audiences. That helps. It helps do more with less. So always think about your architecture, too, because when you get to the end game, if you're just using Word, for example, that could be tough. Let's say you've got a user guide and you've got a, a deployment guide and there's information in both and something changes. Now you have to go find all the documents that's in and make the changes, where if you're single sourcing right. your stuff like I do then I can deploy. I only need to change it in one place and redeploy all my different. Right, right. Um, so there's pieces. like a, a compiling and build process that, I mean, any developer is going to yeah. totally appreciate that. Like you have reference libraries and you have, you know, indexing and, you know, that that uh, data architecture is is really the the important metadata of your variable management. You know, that, that you need to have all that. Think about your, think about your content in the types of content Think about you've got three primary types of content, Con con conceptual content, tasks, and reference. And writing them in a very compartmentalized way can be really useful because then you can get to the point where you're just assembling the content of the documents. And thinking about that as well, thinking about it from, an, from a coding perspective. I mean, building modular, modular documentation isn't all that different right. from writing code. You know, when you're doing something like, for example, uh, cross-referencing or including other pieces of content in a document, like the system that I use allows you to contextually reference something into another document, it's like an include file. It's The whole process is exactly the same. You're, you're taking information, making it available to the current doc from another document. So you only change it in one place, and you can use it in a lot of different places. The same thing with um, conditionalization of content, you know, mm -hmm. if then, 
right? You've got different scenarios and you want different pieces of content and outputs depending on the filter that you've selected. So building in that way can allow you to do a lot more with a mm-hmm. lot less people. And that can really help, especially when you're really yeah, small. Yeah, so we're just, you know, it, it's a lot to think about. It's a, I know a lot of developers who are, you know, solo or working a couple people and, you know, the documentation, it, the extent that that exists at all is, is going to be your, your readme file on a repo. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that that's not going to do any customer any good unless your customer is, you know, a hardcore open source dev and they just, you know, that's, that's how they roll. Yeah. And, and then it may be appropriate contextually, you know, but it still doesn't do all the things that you're talking about. And it, it's a, huge linear document uh, for really non-linear, you know, context-driven information. Some people want something linear depending on what it is. Some people don't. Web is great for non-linear content because the entry point in web Mm -hmm. is search, where an entry point to a PDF, for example, is usually linear. You're starting, you're looking at Mm -hmm. the TOC and either reading through it sequentially or you're jumping to the part you want and reading through it sequentially. So, you know, there, there's different ways people consume information. Again, it kind of comes back to, you always want to keep in mind, people don't like to read. It's a necessary evil when they have a task to do. They just don't want to do it. If you, you know, if you have a very complex process and we talked about this much earlier before we started this podcast, if you, um, if you, uh, have a task at hand and you've got your boss standing over your shoulder screaming at you, the last thing you want to read is a bunch of conceptual information. Just give me the three steps to get this guy off my back. That is really the focus at that point, and that's what you really need. And so writing in that way of thinking, what is the clearest, shortest path to solving my customer's knowledge problem or a troubleshooting issue? Right? If they just don't know how to do something, just tell them. In technical writing, there is no such thing as too many bullet points. (laughs) So if you can make a bulleted list out of something. That's very tweetable. So uh, perfect, perfect ending. Thank you. It's a social media world. So Um, I'm not sure I can take credit for that. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere at some point. If you, uh, what do they say, right? If you copy one person, it's plagiarism. If you copy many, it's research. So, right. That's right. <laughs> so quick right. before we go, uh, you know, give a, give a shout out to the company Temper Networks. You guys are doing some really interesting things. I want to make sure that we just give a give a minute of, of information on that for any you know, customers maybe in the audience uh, for you guys. Sure, sure. So um, I think um, probably the, the the TLDR version is what we do is we make networking simple and secure, and and um, we do this by um, using a. Uh, a protocol called HIP or host identity protocol. And um, as part of our much larger product and technology called IDN or identity defined networking. And, and what, what happens here is we solve what is a problematic issue for um, IP addresses, which is they uh, IP address contains identity and location. And our product separates those. So you can create what's called an identity-based or identity-defined network, which uh, separates those two and allows access based only on identity. 
So location is unimportant in our system. For example, it allows you to roam around in different networks and still have exactly the same access you had, regardless of where you are. So it, it, it frees you up. So in, in that way, which is amazing. <laughs> it always blows me away when I when I see it. It's like you mean I can I can have a small app on my on my desktop and I can literally go to a coffee house and have exactly right, the same no VPN or you know whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a no argument, no, no yeah, firewall I, rules, nothing. Amazing. Just have access. And I can only see what I'm allowed to see. So if some guy steals my laptop, uh, he has a limited amount of information he can see. Um, a, a good example of that would be if you place, uh, oh, let's use an HVAC system behind one of our um, our HIP services, and it only is allowed to talk to the uh, in the network to the reporting database, for example. Uh, if a hacker gains access via that device on the roof of your building, all he's going to see in your network is that reporting database. He won't. He can't even see anything else. It's completely right. And you can torqued. start to imagine in a world of where everything has an IP address that this is a you know a, a huge attack vector, and um, that that yes. that level of technology be super important. Well, I'm glad you're writing all this stuff about it. You know, they're they're blessed to have you. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they think the same thing. Sometimes, <laughs> maybe not. They're like, oh, there's that guy. He's making us making think, us think <laughs> making us communicate. You know, this man, this is tough. So, well, Christopher, yeah. you're fighting the good fight. This has been a fun conversation, and thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.